The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Fifteen, and uh, Pastor Nelson, uh, I've I've tapped him uh, while he was on the plane to preach Revelation 16, because he can't tell me no, fifty thousand feet in the air or whatever it is. Well, he can, but he he said he would do it. So he'll be preaching a couple weeks on Revelation 16. Be a good break for us as we do that. But if you're able to stand this morning, you know I'm going to say it, so you've got to get ready for it. If you want to uh, spring up, as they say, and let's read Revelation 14. I know it is a lengthy passage. If you are unable to stand during that time, you feel free to sit. There's nothing unholy about sitting. If you need to, there's no shame or anything that way. This is the Word of God. I want to read it in whole, and I think it's always good. And I've, I, To be honest with you, I've vacillated with this in my own ministry. It's good to start a sermon, I think, with just reading the Word. You used to always do the intro first, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just sets the scene. So here we are, Revelation 14. Your title may say, The Lamb and the 144,000, 144,000. Whatever it is, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Hear the word of God. This is the ESV. It says, Then I looked, John looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 whose name, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was loud like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they, verse 3, were singing a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144 who had been redeemed from the earth. It was these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. If you're an underliner, that's a great passage to underline. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." Then verse 6, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give glory because the hour as judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, verse 8, a second followed him saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made the nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, and it will be poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. For these worshipers of the beast in the image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here, verse 12, is a call for an endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. And John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, so their deeds follow them. Then verse 14, notice the two reapings going on here. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on one, seated on a cloud, was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, he swung his sickle, 
across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Almost there, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes across the, are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, about 1,600 stadia, or you can see there in your translation, about 185, 884 miles. A heavy passage, isn't it? Welcome to Revelation. This is where it's at. God wins, amen? That's what you need to know. But this is things we should praise God for. We will break it down, we will get through it, and we will hopefully understand it better by God's grace. Again, whether you're a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or a post-trib, it doesn't matter. We're on the same team. God wins. This is where it's at. We're all experiences at some point, depending on which side of that we are. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray, and let's ask him to bless our time. Father, a lengthier passage than we're used to going through. Would you give us wisdom and clarity? Father, we don't have every uh, time to dot every I or cross every T as it is said, but what we do, do. May it be glorifying to you. These are tough words, but Father, for us who are Christians, these are also in some sense celebratory words because it's the once and for all judgment that's to come in this last picture before the next cycle that will start with the bowls of wrath. So Father, would you be lifted high? Would you be glorified? And even through the tough things that are in this passage, may we see a glimpse of you, our Savior, and the salvation we have in Christ. Father, there are many needs in this congregation today, from health to finances to relationships to just uh, our relationship with you, perhaps. Father, as we see you high and lifted up, may we be at rest and at peace as we do these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, many years ago, Dr. Robert Troutwine, probably not a name you know well, Dr. Robert Troutwine of William Jewell College was called in the 1998 NFL draft to decide between these two young bucks at the time. One of them on the right you will probably know as Peyton Manning. The other on the left is a a long-forgotten name, unless you're a football guy or gal, named Ryan Leaf. And Dr. Troutwine had developed a profile called the TAP, the Troutwine Athletic Profile. And he was a consult for many NFL teams based out of Liberty, Missouri. And in between classes, with one minute on the clock left to go, the number one pick in the 1998 NFL draft, Jim Irsay called Dr. Troutwine and said, who do you got, Troutwine, Manning or Leaf? And without hesitation, he said, take Peyton Manning. And if you're a football fan, you know how that turned out. He was our enemy for times, but you can't knock the guy. His commercials are better than his play at times. But nevertheless, the pick was made correctly. Ryan Leaf had some flares of good uh, uh, football here and there, but really he just fuddled out and, and unfortunately made some very terrible life decisions. But Dr. Troutwine would often tell that story, and he would say it was not that they weren't the best. It was who was almost best and who was the best, and my profile allowed me to make that decision. Friends, here we are in a transition very much the same. In chapter 13, we saw the beast, and we saw the land beast, and the sea beast, and all these people, and he called us to have discernment. 
And now in chapter 14, we have another picture which seems to be hard even when God brings it to bear. And we have to make a decision which one is right. And the answer is chapter 14, the lamb. And just like Dr. Troutwine had to make a call about who we're going to follow, so too we with discernment have to make a call who we will follow. And if you're a Christian, that call has come to you. You are one who follows the lamb. And I want you to know discernment comes a long way because Romans 13, 11 tells us that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And if there's ever a time to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ or re-up that decision and to know that's going to be the right decision forever, it's now in these times that we call the end times, the last days. And friends, Jesus foretold that there would be coming challenges. There would be challenges to your faith, your family, your church. There would be challenges to your nation all around. But we know the sky will open. We know that Jesus will return. And we know that judgment is going to come all across the world. Big, small, great, doesn't matter, it's coming. And so today, I want you to know the big idea is that Jesus is a saving lamb and a slaying Lord. He can do both. And as they said about him in his gospels, he does all things well. And so friends, when it comes time to make a decision, we may not get a call from an owner of an NFL team asking who we're gonna follow, but if you had to phone it in, the only choice that makes sense is that you go with this lamb wherever he goes. That is what discernment says. Look, death is inevitable, judgment looms, heaven is there, hell is ready and burning and hotter than ever, but Jesus stands as our Savior, and may he give us wisdom to follow him. As we come to Revelation chapter 14, we've been kind of in a cycle here, a break, and in between these breaks, we've already seen that the, the trumpets have blown and the seals have been broken. We're in between the last section of seven, the cycles of seven, and we're seeing a picture of what it is in the very last times that will come to be. In chapter 12, we looked at the picture of the man-child or, or the son and the beast and the woman, the woman representing the church and Jesus representing the child and the beast, of course, representing that, that nasty devil that we know. And last week, we heard about the, the, the land beast and the sea beast and the, the anti-trinity with the dragon being Satan, kind of like the father, and then the, the land beast, the antichrist being like the son, and then the sea beast being like the Holy Spirit, the anti-opposite of the trinity. And now John is going to bring us from the opposite of what we saw with Satan ruling now to the triumph of the lamb himself. That ought to give you a jolt of energy this morning because he's going to do it. And yes, there's a lot of symbolism in here. Remember, we're in a picture book. We believe this is apocalyptic language, but just because it's a picture doesn't mean it's not true. It's, it's reality. It's coming. But some of these images in here, and we have a lot of young ears, are very intense. I mean, they don't even, they're just very intense. The wine press of God's wrath. But I want you to know it is a saving lamb who gives us opportunity to come to him. But he also will wield that sword, won't he? as the slaying Lord, because he said he will come to set all things right. So this morning, I want you to see these three truths that we're going to be looking at as we see uh, these pictures of what is to come. And the first truth I want you to see is that the lamb assures his sealed servants. The lamb assures his sealed servants. And you see, uh, you can see the headings are broken down this way too, if you want to look at them. Verse 1, I looked. Verse 6, I saw. And then verse 14, I looked. It's very easy to break this down. Uh, and I'll, I'll confess to you that most uh, pastors I asked or, or ones I looked up preached this in three messages. We're going to do it in one. Amen? You may be here until the next potluck, but you're going to be okay. And I uh, hope you brought some food. No, we'll get there. 
But I want you to notice John says there that he, he assures his sealed servants. Then I looked, and behold, Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000. These are sealed people. They are sealed people. That is that first subpoint. They're sealed people. And these 144,000, I want to remind you, there's great debate on who these are. But some say there are 144,000 Jewish evangelists. It's a very common thing. I argued back in Revelation 7, I think this is symbolic of all the church of all the time. But however you take it, the point is, is that God has sealed up his people. And where has he put them? He's put them in Mount Zion. 155 times in the Old Testament, Mount Zion is used as a reference to God's eternal home. And friends, I want you to know that is where you will be if you know Jesus Christ. There's no mistaking where you are if you're a Christian. You're not in La La Land or Netherland. You are with Christ. And he said, I look and behold, Mount Zion stood the who? The lamb. And that lamb is representative, of course, of who? Of Jesus Christ. And he, they, he is sealing up. Notice what he does here. He takes these 144,000 who had the name of his father written on their forehead. What about the son and everything else? No, it's the name of the father. This is distinguishing them from the beast who had it on the forehead or on the hand. And so what he's saying here is these are the redeemed. These are the church people. These are the, not the church people who are saved, excuse me, not just church goers, but church people who are saved. These are Christians. These are, these are regenerate people. And their name was written on their foreheads. So what John is seeing here is an antithesis to everything that was happening in chapter 13. The beast had it on the forehead and the arm. Well, guess what? God's people have it on the forehead. But notice that it said the Father did this. Picture of the Trinity. Once again, the Father called you before salvation. The Son sought you and bought you and redeemed you. And do you know what the Spirit did, Ephesians 4.30? He sealed you up and he set you apart. And no one, as Jeff read from John 10, can snatch you out of his hand. I don't like the phrase, but you've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. There's truth there. The the better phrase, I think, is uh, once preserving, always preserved. If you're really saved, it's going to continue. You will walk until the end by God's grace. But I want you to know, because you're sealed up, you don't need to impress anyone anymore. You don't need to try to prove yourself anymore. If you are justified by faith, as Abraham was. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, and you're sealed by the Spirit. You have nothing to prove in this world. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try hard. Doesn't mean you shouldn't give your best. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to make your best self, so to speak, with all the biblical principles we know, but you don't have to prove to God that you are holy and righteous. You're only holy and righteous because Christ is holy and righteous, and he's within you. So these are a sealed people. These are a sealed up people. And as you go, that is great assurance for you. Some of you who doubt salvation, even in the book of Revelation, Satan, the false beast, and the false prophet can do nothing to touch you. He can tempt you. He can throw all hell at you. But come hell or high water, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church and its people. You have nothing to prove. It's a sealed people. Second thing I want you to see, they are a singing people. In the midst of all this, they are a singing people. Verse 2 He says, and I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like a sound of harpists playing on their harps. First thing you notice here, there's a distinction. Revelation 7 describes the sealings of the tribes of Israel here. This appears to be the redeemed of all the ages. But what's happening is what 1 Peter talks about, that angels had interest in what was going on. But there is, first of all, a loud singing. Did you notice that? There was a loud singing. The voice of many waters. 
This is a, a, a heavenly chorus because the triumph has happened. The victory has been won. How would you not sing? You know, in sporting events, a lot of times the momentum switch shifts from backwards and forwards, and all it takes is one play of the team who's losing to get some momentum, and the crowd's back in the game. Well, this crowd never loses its momentum. They're always in the game because the game has been won. It's game over for Satan and the anti-Trinity. It has been done, but they're loud. It's like the rumbling, and John's describing this as best he can. It's like the cascading waters. Never been there? Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls before? And you hear that, heard it online at least for whatever YouTube can give you. And we've heard thunder. It's loud. Scares you. It jumps when the house shakes. It's loud. But notice, secondly, it's unified and amazing. Verse 2, the sound of harpists playing their harps. You ever go to a symphony, you never hear someone going out of tune with the rest of the orchestra unless they're doing a solo. But here, they're unified. And verse 2 says that the harpists, like harpists playing harps, what's he trying to get at? He's telling you that this is a unified group. This heavenly chorus is not broken into Baptist and Lutheran and whatever else have you. All the redeemed across all denominations, across all time, who truly believe by faith alone in Jesus are singing the song of Jesus alone. That ought to encourage you. Denominations are not all bad for, for some reasons, but sometimes we forget that Baptists don't have it all right. We get things wrong too. And that in heaven, it's not just going to be a Baptist heaven and a Lutheran heaven and a Methodist heaven and whatever else. We will be together. But we will all believe the same things, that Jesus came to die. It's, it's unified and amazing. But notice what happens in verse 3. They begin to sing. And it says, and they begin to sing a, and we'll just, we'll actually stop there. They began to sing. And go ahead, Amy, you can put that next step. What they sing? A new song. We'll break that into two points. What they, they began to sing. It's, they start seeking. Why? Because they have a reason to sing. Now, I'm not going to be so dogmatic as to say, if you don't sing here, you're not Christian because you'll be singing in heaven. But there ought to be something to be said about how we sing here in preparation for what God is doing in heaven. You know a church loves Jesus by the way they sing. At least you should. doesn't mean that loud people, unsaved people can be loud too. I get that. My point is, the more you know about Christ, they're singing, and that's a joyful noise. It doesn't matter what noise you make. The fact is, in heaven, this is what you're going to be doing in part is singing. Why would you not want to practice now? And you notice there, it's a new song. It's a new song. And it's one that, that, that was before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. And no one, notice the anniversary, no one can learn the song except 144,000. So guess what? Unsaved people can sing, but only saved people get the reason why they sing. Do you see that difference? The reason they sing so loud, the reason they sing so unified and begin to sing a new song is because they are just worshiping and they're, they're, they're understanding once again what's happening with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That ought to stir your soul. I remember going to many, uh, uh, many conferences and hearing men and women in the thousands singing old hymns. And it really, it really shakes. If you walk out of there unmoved, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Nothing really for you. So can I encourage you to sing? Sing the words. Sing off key. Sing words you don't know. Let the lyrics sink into your soul because that's what you're going to be doing in heaven. We're a sealed people. We're a singing people. But I want you to also know we're a sanctified people. Look at verses 4 and 5. We're a sanctified people. And in verse 4, he goes on to say, it is those who have not defiled themselves with women. These are pure, P-U-R-E, these are pure people. 
I want to be clear here, this virginity is symbolic. Our Roman Catholic friends use this as one of the many proof texts they have for being celibate for the rest of their lives. I don't think that's what's in view here. Just as the Old Testament called Israel, um, uh, Israel sometimes was called a prostitute because they prostituted themselves out, so too the bride of Christ in the New Testament sometimes is referred to as being sexually immoral. We're not saying these are physical people, but, but these people are pure because they themselves have sought after the one who is holy. And in his holiness, he's made them pure. But verse 4 goes on. He says, it is those who follow the Lamb. This is a committed people. This is not only a pure people. This is a committed people. Those are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That sounds like an old uh, kid song, doesn't it? And Mary followed him wherever he went or something like that. But what's happening here is this is a description of those who know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're going to be committed to Jesus. Well, duh, pastor, right? But guys, we have so lowered the bar here, in around, especially in America, about what constitutes a Christian. If you are a Christian, you will want to be committed to Jesus Christ. It'll ebb and flow, but your focus is still on him. These are a committed people. If you don't desire to follow Jesus, I greatly doubt that you really know Jesus. If you are truly in Christ, you'll want to follow him wherever he goes. Sometimes it's harder than you want to be in a place you want to be. Sometimes that's a, a different situation, whatever it is, but you follow him wherever he goes. And notice verse 5. They're not only pure and committed, they're honest people. They're honest. There was no lying in their lips, or some translations, there was no guile in their lips. These, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits, and in their mouth no lie was found. What's that saying? It means they desire truth. They want truth. They do what Jesus said in John 17 when he prayed to the Father, thy word is truth. How do you know a Christian? They seek to live a pure life, not sinless. They're committed to Christ, and they desire truth. They're honest with their lips. They're not a Jacob lying to a Laban, and they're not a Jacob scheming an Esau. They're truthful in what they say. And would you pray that for us as pastors, that we don't tickle your ears with what you want to hear instead of give you what God says we need to hear. Finally, they're honest, but they're also blameless. Notice the end of verse 5. We're assured and sealed and singing and sanctified. Why? Because no lie was found, for they are blameless. In other words, they are faultless before God's throne because they are positionally right with Jesus. They are in cahoots with Jesus, and because they're in cahoots with Jesus, there's no sin within them. That's good news. This is why, if you're on your deathbed, I'm not going to pray a, uh, a last rites prayer for you. I'm going to pray that your soul gets saved. This is why, if you've fallen into sin, and it proves that you do not know Jesus over a period of time, and you've walked away from there, and there's no remorse in your life, we're not going to tell you just to go walk an aisle. We're going to tell you to turn and repent to Christ. Because when you're in Christ, you will sin, but you know even though you sin, there's a God who loves you and has mercy on your soul every single time you come to him. Why do you sing? Because you're sealed. Why do you sing? Because you're sanctified. Why are you sealed? Because Christ did it all, and that's it. You see why they sang a new song, don't you? First truth is, is that the Lamb assures the seals of the saints. Friends, this should be an encouragement to pray, to follow the Lamb, and follow him wherever he goes. 
So that's the good news, right? That's the foundation. It's going to get harder from here. Let's go to number two. The angels announce the good news. The angels announce the good news. Jesus is a loving, um, uh, he's a loving lamb, or excuse me, a saving lamb and a slaying Lord because he seals us up, but also because he sends angels to announce his good news. Look at verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth and every nation, tribe, language, people. And he said with a loud voice, verse seven, fear God and give him glory because the hour has come for judgment and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. What's happening here in verses six through 13, you're going to have three different angels bring three different messages. And they're all coming from Mount Zion. These are not the false angels that look like angels, uh, but are of Satan. These are actual angels coming from the hand of God. And the first one brings an eternal gospel. The first one brings an eternal gospel. And he announces a gospel to all the earth. What, so you say, Pastor, when is this happening? I would argue this gospel is for all time. The angel has been bringing the message and sharing this. The message has not changed since the beginning of time. If you are more of a pre-trib person, this would be after the two witnesses have died and, and about midway through the tribulation. No matter how you take this, the point is, is that he's urging people to do two things, fear and honor. Can you fear God? You know, people used to say uh, growing up, at least I remember I was on the edge of these generations, that he's a good and godly man or he fears God. You used to hear that a lot. You don't hear a lot of people describe other people that way anymore, do you? That he fears God. You might say, yeah, they're a good person, they're nice, they're, they're, they're quaint, they're, they have good manners. But you don't hear people who fear and honor God. How do you come to know Jesus? You fear for your soul. It is a fearful thing, Hebrews says, to fall in the hands of the living God. You fear for your soul because you know that you don't worry about what they can do to your body. You fear, as Jesus said, the one who can cast your soul into hell. That's what you fear. And how do you show that you know and understand what that means? You honor him with your life. You give him every corner of your life, your sin, your commitment, everything about you. This is a, a, a call for people to come to Christ. But I want you to know as the world gets darker, the gospel shines brighter. As the world gets darker, the gospel shines brighter. There are many, many people as you look around who say it is getting worse, and friends, it is. I mean, Paul told Timothy that this world will go from bad to worse, 1 Timothy 4, and then he lists like 15 different things that will happen. You can go read about that after church. But I want you to know this angel proclaims a message as, as it gets darker, the gospel is shining brighter. That ought to encourage your soul in these days. Even if you don't see it, God is working. Remember Elijah and the 7,000 who were saved from uh, following after Baal? There's always a remnant. And God shows it here, and he says it as he, he, he calls them back to the maker of heaven and earth. I want to remind you, no one was, is without excuse. We talked about this. I think Ashley brought this up, Romans 1. There's no one without excuse in this world. Everyone has enough information to make a decision whether to follow God or not. Creation testifies to him. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glories of God, and, and they are the work of his hands or his handiwork. That's it. That's the first angel, brings an eternal gospel. Second angel brings uh, the fallen city announcement, the fallen city, verse 8. He says, another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great, 
She who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What is this, what is this talking about? Babylon is much like Egypt in the Old Testament in that Egypt was always looked upon as the place you don't go back to. But where did Israel always want to go back to? Man, they had better uh, double-stacked burgers like McDonald's, a double Whopper or something in Egypt. Egypt always represents the old life, the dead life. And so Babylon is, in New Testament terms, and especially Revelation, that life that is no longer needed. And he says, fallen is Babylon the great. What's he referring to? This is actually Isaiah 21 and 22 in prophecy. This announcement signifies that Babylon's defeat, that the enemy of Satan and his people, the city of Satan, everyone who follows Satan and, and described here symbolically as a city, has been defeated. So every satanic stronghold, to use a Pentecostal term, and everything that comes forth has been defeated. But guess what? He still wants you as the consolation prize. Just like an animal that's about to die, knows it's going to die, but if it can get one more claw in you or one more something in you, it's going to do everything it can to take you down with it. And that is Satan's goal. He knows that they are fallen. He knows that he's read the book, as we often say. He knows that he's going to die, but he wants to take everything and everybody with him as much as he is. Parents, this is why we often pray for our kids' salvation and souls. Grandparents, this is why you pray for your grandkids or maybe your grown kids' salvation and souls. It is a spiritual battle. And Satan would stop at nothing to take every ounce of his junk and throw it their way because he knows if he can take them, he's got the family. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Satan's big target is on you. He wants you. He desires you. And he's going to make it look like it's not so bad, but once you get in it, it's as worse as worse could be. I'm not telling you to be scared of the boogeyman who jumps out of every corner, but I do want you to know that it's real. But it is fallen. Christ has defeated Satan, but he will stop at nothing to take all those with him. Notice the last announcement. There is eternal gospel, fallen city, verses 9 to 11. We're going to camp out here for a few minutes. The eternal fire. Amy, if you just want to put all those up, that'd be great, just for those taking notes. There is a disastrous way. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, there's, there's a disastrous way. Another angel, a third, followed him and saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on the hand, and we can stop right there. The disastrous way is following after Satan and the, the terrible things that he's bringing, the false trinity of chapter, verse, or chapter 13. The disastrous way is following anything other than the risen Jesus Christ. Choosing the false trinity over the true trinity leads to judgment on the day of judgment. Is another way to put that. If you follow after him, it will be a disastrous way. But look at verse 10. He says it will also be a dreadful place. It's where God's wrath is unmitigated. He will drink the wine, speaking of those who follow after the beast. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented by fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Look, it involves both an internal and external torment. The internal torment will be for those in hell who said, I heard the gospel. Somebody shared it with me. Someone prayed about it. I heard a sermon. I read the Bible. I read a gospel track. My grandma told me. My mom told me. That pastor I hated told me the gospel. In hell, there will be internal torment forever and ever and ever and ever of a woulda, shoulda, coulda of people who wish they would have turned to Jesus Christ. 
A lot of you carry things in your mind and your psyche, to use a psychological term, the Bible would just call it your, your body and your soul that nobody knows about. It's a weight that you carry. And that torments you, even though you give it to God. Take that and magnify it by eternity with no relief. There's also an external. These are symbolic images here to a degree. Will there literally be fire and sulfur? I believe there will be. But the point of it is, it's going to be so terrible, so dreadful. It's not a place you want to be. Look, I know a lot of us grew up in the pulpit pounding, hellfire and brimstone times, and I, I, we can knock them for, for overdoing that to a point where the Scripture doesn't give license to that. But if there's anything we've done, we've air-conditioned hell more than we've, we've, we've promoted how hot and fiery it really is. Because there is going to be an external torment and an internal torment. And notice verse 11, it's everlasting. It doesn't stop. And the smoke of their torment rose up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And friends, that's what it says. It never stops. It's no relief, no escape. If you have a bulletin, I've listed some things we put out on our Theology Tuesday. I won't go over these, but I want you to know as Christians, we believe that hell is real because the Bible says it's real. We take the Bible as the inspired word of God. And if we don't believe in hell, that says more about our understanding of God than it says about what God has said about hell. We don't take it seriously. We don't understand our sin seriously. But I want you to know that, and I've listed some things there. I'll just read them verbatim without explanation. Hell is eternal rebellion. There is no repentance. In hell, Satan is not going to be partying it up. He doesn't get a kingdom. Hell is God's justice. There's deserved punishment. In hell, it's lonely, painful, and not social. Can't tell you how many people over the years in Westport, in the bar section when we evangelized, said, oh, I'm just, I'll just go to hell and party it up with Satan and my friends down there. I got friends in low places. <laughs> I heard that song quoted to me more times than you know on the streets of Westport. But in hell, there's no universal salvation. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, Mormons. Sorry, Islam. Sorry, Seventh-day Adventists. When you cross over, there is no return. It's permanent. But God tells us if we seek him, we will find forgiveness. Amen? Because in hell, there is justice, there is wrath, and there is not love. Someone always asks, is God, is God, so I've been taught, Pastor, that, that hell is the absence of God's presence. Well, look at verse 11 and verse 10. You will suffer in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is as present in hell as he is in heaven. It's just without mercy and grace. It's with justice and wrath instead. Terrible place. What should this do for us? Well, I think there are several things that we need to remember. We should be sad over these things. That's probably a very light word in what is response. How should we feel? We should feel sad. We should feel sorrowful. We should be distraught over those who end up there. But we should be eternally grateful and thankful, number two, that we have the mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen? We wish no one to go to hell. I want to be clear on that. There are sometimes you hear a sermon about these things that you, you, you get the sense the preacher wishes everyone would go to hell except for him and a few of his cronies. No. We walk with a weight that says everyone needs to hear the gospel. If you know someone in your life they're not just going to a, a, a purgatory or a soul sleep or, or going to be annihilated someday. No, they go to hell. 
And that is justly deserved because God is just in his character. It should wreck our world. And you know what Satan's number one strategy is to teach? Well, clearly hell must be symbolic. Satan would say, no, it's literal. The pictures here may be symbolic in some way. We don't know for sure. But what is true is that God is going to bring it to bear. And that's what we need to know. What do we learn from this? I want you to know you need to be patient in your trials. In the midst of all the craziness that Satan brings, you need to be patient in your trials. Patient with people who don't understand or believe or agree with you with what we just read. Patient with them when they're questioning whether a loving God could do such a thing or, or whatever it is. We are called to remain steadfast. Look at verse 12. Here is the call for endurance. Notice he sandwiches this with the, the sealed, seeing, sanctified people, 1 to 5. And then down, he gives you in verses 6 to uh, 11 that, those terrible pictures. But he, he calls, what is your place in this, Christian? Here it is. The call for endurance of the saints and those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Your job is to keep doing what God told you to do, no matter what may shake out in this world. Keep your focus. That's it. I've run many a marathon, and there are many things I could do. I could run off and get a bagel at Panera on the way. That's, that sounds good sometimes. I could go do this or go do that. I could skip my goal is to run from point A to point B. And yes, John Moody, I know I don't have to do that, but I choose to do John always teases me, you know, you don't have to run that far. Yeah, I know that, but we do it anyway. Stay the course. Be patient in trials. Secondly is this. Your works will follow you, Christian. Your works will follow you. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead of those who die in Christ. But I want you to know the end of verse 12 especially, the works will follow you. What you do here for Christ matters for eternity for Christ. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 tells you not to give up in doing good, for at the right time you will reap the harvest. That is not some name it, claim it, blabby-gabby stuff. That is what the Bible says. Keep sowing the seed of the gospel. Even if people are bent on they're going to party it up, keep sowing that eternal gospel over and over and reminding them about these things. That's what we're called to do. Parents, and I know we struggle with this too, we have to present these realities to our, our kids. They must know there's a heaven. They must know there's a hell. The greatest tragedy would be if someone were to stand before God and say, you know, I knew so-and-so Christian, but they never told me about these terrible places. And in Luke 16, we know that it says very clearly, the man who was in the literal hell at that time said, well, I want to go tell my brothers. And Father Abraham said, they, if they don't believe the prophets and they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe anything, even if someone is risen from the dead. Friends, you can't change a person, but you can pray that God changes a person. Your works of prayer, even if they seem fruitless, will carry through to eternity. Number three is this, death equals blessed. This isn't a call to go take your life for the sake of Christ, as some Muslim people do for the sake of a law, but this is what it says. Blessed are those who are dead and die for the Lord. Blessed indeed. This is probably referring to martyrs who give their faith for Christ, their life for Christ. But I want you to know that someday they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. If you know someone who's passed into glory, they're in glory with Christ, but it's a restful place. You notice that contrast there. The ones in hell never get any rest, but the ones in heaven get all the rest. And what's the difference? Spoiler alert, right there. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. So these angels announce good news. 
He brings fire, yes. He brings an eternal gospel, a fallen city. You are sealed, you are sanctified, you are seen. But that leads to what life always leads to, the separation, the line in the sand. Let's look at the last one. The sun swings the sickle of judgment. There is a saving lamb, but there's also a slaying Lord. The sun swings the sickle of judgment. What is a sickle? Well, you know what an ice sickle... We just got out of this, didn't we? Uh, lest we forget that three weeks ago it was negative 40 degrees here, whatever it was. Icicles, you know, those big things that form, and that if they fall on you the wrong way, and people have died that way, a sickle was, of course, just an instrument they used to, to reap down things. But I want you to read with me verse 14. There's another heading, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on him was one like a son of man. I want you to know, this is debated, is this another angel? Is this is Christ? I think you can tell by the heading where I'm going with this. I believe this to be Christ himself. Why doesn't it say that? One like a son of man. What was Jesus' favorite title from Daniel chapter 7? Son of man. Who was the one who walked in the fires of Daniel? And the king said that it was one like a son of man, probably the pre-incarnate Christ. He wa- and he brought a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, and sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is first off the harvest of the righteous. The harvest of the righteous. If you are in Christ, you are righteous. You are blameless. You are positionally his. An angel commands the reaper, and this emphasizes the gathering of the souls. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. White is the harvest, Jesus said. This is the first harvest, represents the believer's destiny, and the second one we'll get to in a minute is those who reject salvation. But notice here that they are saved by Christ, and he will reap the hours come for the harvest of earth. What is this? This is Christ gathering his church. This is Christ bringing home all those that are his. The time of the Lord has come. That's why if you're a pre-trib person, if you're a pre-trib person, what do you do with this? There's great debate even among uh, pre-trib dispensationalists. But the point of it is, we all agree, Christ is going to gather his people. And when he gathers them, he'll be reaping. Do you remember John 15? Jesus said, all those who don't bear fruit will be thrown into the fire. But those who grow fruit, he will, he will at times prune off. That's the same imagery here. It's the harvest of the righteous. That is, when Jesus comes, he's taking all those with him who know him. But there's also the harvest, secondly, of the rebellious. Verse 17. Then an angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, and the angel of the authority over the fire called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. What is happening here? The focus shifts now not on the redeemed who will be taken to heaven, but on those who refuse to bow the knee to get to heaven to go to Christ. The cycle here is a vivid and violent judgment. I've never been to a wine press. I don't drink wine. And we are definitely grape juice Baptists to the degree we are. Amen. Welches all the way. But a wine press is such that they would stand in it with their feet and crush it until their, their feet looked like the grape juice or everything, doesn't it? 
And the point that's being tried to make here is that the imagery is so strong that sinners are likened to grapes in the great winepress of God's wrath, that God is going to crush them. He will judge them. And you notice how extensive this imagery goes. The winepress was trodden outside the city. Outside the city refers back to Mount Zion in verse uh, verse 1. Remember, there's an eternal city for God's people. This is happening outside the city. These are not Christians. These are not believers. And you say as high as a horse's bridle for about 1,600 stadia or 185 miles-ish, what is the point being made? The point being made is that this judgment is so comprehensive, the judgment is so terrible that nothing can stand in its way and it's going to be so much. Pastor, are there going to be more people in heaven than there are in hell? I do not know. But what I do know is that those in hell are enough that God had to put this imagery in to remind us how terrible it's going to be. High as a horse's bridle or 1600 stadia. What is he saying? He's simply saying, God means business. And when he says he's going to judge the world, he's going to do it fully and he's going to do it completely. As we close, three things I want you to remember, eternal truths to remember. And Amy, if you just want to put those up for sake of those with notes, thank you. Nothing is more important, I think, as you take away from this chapter. Nothing is greater, nothing is more important than your faith in Jesus Christ. When it all is boiled down to, you're really on under the harvest of the righteous or the harvest of the rebellious. It's really what it's all about. It's really it. There's nothing more to life. We make choices. We have to live out. We have to do life here and Day by day, we, this weight may not be on us as much as it, but the point is, is that Revelation 12 says we are called to prioritize our seeking God. Are we doing that? Are we trying to do that? And I just want to encourage you again, number two, is that nothing you do for Jesus will ever be forgotten. Things people see, things people don't see, God sees. And on that great day, it will mean so much more. You know, I think about, I was trying to think about this yesterday. Our kids were nerds with me for a minute, and you probably did not do this with your exciting Saturday morning. We watched the U.S. Marathon Olympic trials. I know that's what you want to do for three hours is watch people run for three hours, or two hours. And they kept talking about how some of these people, and I, I get it, and I'm 50 minutes slower than they are, how most of these people will spend literally 20 years of their life for one race, for one chance to be in the top three to go to Paris or whatever Olympics it is. And they asked one of them after he won, was all the sacrifice worth it? And you know what I'm about to say. He said, absolutely. That's a sport. When you get to heaven someday, whatever God calls you to sacrifice on his behalf in this earth is going to be like that runner who passed, one of them almost literally did pass out at the finish line. He won't care what the end result was, what it took, or what he sacrificed or suffered. What matters is is what he did for Christ, and he'll look back and say, it was all worth it. Well done, good and faithful servant. And finally, he's coming, guys. There are two certainties in this life. Death, taxes, maybe a third. Jesus is coming again. Amen? That's what you need to know. We just... Submitted our stuff to our tax person yesterday, and that's one of the greatest earthly weights that can be lifted. Amen? (laughs) Until you see how much you owe or get back. But nevertheless, God is good, and I want you to know that. 
look, no matter if you take this dispensationally or you take this idealistically, the point of the matter is Jesus is a saving lamb. He is a slaying Lord. He will fulfill his word. Let's go before the Lord as we pray and close out today. Father.